Hey, thanks for checking in with us on this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. For this edition, we bring you Tracy Maxfield. Tracy is a longtime nurse, and she has been battling depression for many years after a lot of different struggles in life, and she's got a very important story to tell, and so we're happy to give her the platform, a platform. She's on many platforms. She's uh, been a a part of a radio show, and she's written a book, and she's out there telling her story to to school-age kids, and she's all over the place trying to help people to battle and manage their own depression because she has been through some hell herself, so be sure to check into Tracy Maxfield at tracymaxfield.com. That's T-R-A-C-E-Y-M-A-X-F-I-E-L-D.com. And then, uh, you know, also she's on the socials. So uh, if you could, be sure to show her some love out there. And without further introduction, here we go. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us on yet another edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Colt. Yes, sir. And on the line with us today, we have Tracy Maxfield. How are you doing today, Tracy? Well, it's very early here, but I am raring to go. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You are two hours behind us, two hours in the past for us. (laughs) And you're coming from from where exactly, Tracy? I'm coming from Kelowna in British Columbia, which is in Western Canada. British Columbia. I, I, this is. I don't know if we've had a guest from British Columbia yet, so this is exciting. Have I don't we? Believe cool? so. No. Uh-uh. No, we've had some. Uh, at least one guest just from. Um, he, he was just from the just directly north of us, but I can't remember exactly where off the top of my head. But at any rate, it's great to have you with us, Tracy. I know you've got a very interesting story, and I know that you you kind of you're kind of on a mission, and we're going to get into that. But your story's not just interesting. I feel like that it's important. I feel like it's it, you have a message that you're trying to relay to anyone who who might benefit from from hearing your your trials, your troubles, and the way that you have and continue to take take on those challenges and and meet the the, the requirements that it takes in order just to just to maintain in this life. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that. But before we delve into your story, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to this uh, this place in your life, and you can start as early as what you'd like. Okay, so let's start with once upon a time. Um, <laughs> so I was born in Wales in the United Kingdom. Okay. From the age of two, wanted to be a nurse. Wow. It was just something I felt inside me, very passionate about it. I used to bandage my dolls, my teddies, and that kind of stay. Obviously, I'm a nurse. <laughs> it, stayed, <laughs> it stayed with me. Unfortunately, I had a very, very abusive, nasty childhood. Initially, physical abuse, which then became, I would say, horrible, horrible emotional abuse. Uh, At the age of five, I think watching TV, there was so many um, American TV shows on at that time. I suddenly wanted to come to the United States. So throughout my, I would say, very unpleasant childhood, for want of a better word, um, two things kept me going. It was be a nurse, go to live in the United States. So at age 19, I actually left home and started nursing. Um, When I completed my nurse training, I decided, okay, great, I'll just move to the USA. And then kind of had that rude awakening of, it's a little bit more difficult than you think. (laughs) 
And whilst I was uh, kind of investigating my options, someone suggested, well, you know what? They're desperate for nurses in Canada. And because Canada and Britain are part of the Commonwealth nation, it's probably going to be easier for you to go to Canada. And when I checked into it, obviously it was. So in 1987, June, I boarded a plane with two bulging suitcases and I flew on my own to Calgary, Canada. And that was it. I've been here ever since. Since then, of course, I've moved around a few places in Canada, but I completed my um, Canadian nursing equivalency exams and started working in hospitals. Along the way, I got married. Um, early on in my marriage, uh, we had to deal with my family um, who was still trying to manipulate and abuse and control me, even though I was in another country. And finally, I severed ties with them, I would say, I think it was back in 1993. Uh, continued nursing in very different areas, palliative care, gerontology, dementia care were my specialities. Had my first episode of depression around 1993. It was related to the severing of ties with my family. Um, with counseling and antidepressants, I actually got over it reasonably quickly. Within a year, I was off the antidepressants and life went on. And then about 13 years later, a series of stresses in my life and I had another episode of depression. And at that time, I saw a psychiatrist who felt, based on the family history, um, that it was likely I had a genetic component. And so he advised maybe it was a good idea to stay on a low dose of antidepressants because chances are I'd have another episode anywhere between 10 to 15 years in the future. Mm. And so that was it. Life continued. I, I certainly didn't grab my calendar and highlight it and say, you know, alert, alert, <laughs> depressive episode could occur at any moment. I was, uh, I'd was i been working for the same organization for a number of years in different roles, and I was offered a position at the local hospital, and that was back in 2011. And I started the job extremely busy, very, very stressful, but at that time, I also encountered a superior who was a bully. And so um, the intimidation and the harassment and the threats began. It was kind of um, slow to begin, but kind of picked up every six months or so. Um, in 2012, that's when things really started to come to a head and everything in my personal life started falling apart. So um, my husband, who is now my ex, um, and I weren't able to have children, so we had dogs, and we had two dogs that were really our surrogate kids. Um, one of the dogs became very, very ill and died within a four-day period, um, and it was very weird in that I felt something switch off in my head. I couldn't grieve properly. I couldn't grieve with anybody else. A couple of months later, my husband and I separated. Six months after that, we ended up selling well I bought myself out of the house and I ended up buying a new home and moved away and so I started life kind of as a 
over 50-year-old woman, single, uh, threw myself into work. Um, and that was in 2013, except the workplace bullying continued to escalate yearly. It was absolutely horrendous. And then there were a series of events that began in December 2014, continued through into 2015, where the bullying became so bad. I was feeling very burnt out. I had two episodes of pneumonia. And in August of 2015, um, ended up in a meeting with my superior and two union aides um, who I'd asked to accompany me because my gut instinct told me something very bad was going to happen. And I was right. And um, due to what you know, transpired in the in that meeting, and just the the lies and the false allegations and the personal um, attack. It was just horrendous. And it was a Thursday um, when the meeting was over. That's when I kind of fell apart. I didn't fall apart in the meeting. Didn't even cry. Kind of, you know, that Brit with uh, you know, you can do this, stiff up a lip, and all that. I got home, I was just in an absolute state, thought my life was over and crawled into bed. And that was a Thursday. When I woke up on the Friday, I couldn't move and I thought maybe during the night I'd had a stroke. And when I finally did kind of figure how to sit up on the side of the bed, I remember thinking, it's like I'm encased in cement. Uh, I ended up crawling, I couldn't even walk that day. I I felt so completely way down and in so much pain and I just kind of crawled to go upstairs and get something to drink and try and take my medications. Um, the day was kind of spent more or less in bed, just, you know, just those horrible negative thoughts that just multiply hopelessness, helplessness, um, just the darkness was just crushing me. And then on the set, and at the time, I still didn't identify that it was depression because the, of the physical effects. And then on the Saturday night, very, very calmly, I counted out 44 acetaminophen or Tylenol pills and poured myself a glass of water and put the first pill up to my mouth. And from nowhere, I could hear this voice come by my left ear and it said, run. And I did. I didn't question it. I just put the pill down and I ran. Ended up um, driving around 8 o'clock on a Saturday night here. There's not a lot open except Walmart. So I looked an absolute wreck. Um, I walked up and down the aisles in Walmart until I felt strong enough to return home. Um, When I did, put the pills away, went to bed, and at that point realized I was in trouble. And on the Monday, I went to see my doctor, and she told me that um, I'd had a major depressive episode. Um, or in layman's terms, it was, quote, unquote, a massive nervous breakdown. Mm. And so began my journey. I likened it immediately to being in the rabbit hole. I, I felt like I had been pushed down a hole and... To me, it felt like a rabbit hole. It was very dark. It was cold. It was earthy. I could almost feel like there were twigs and roots and everything there. Um, 
And I think that was because of the, the pain that I could feel, you know, everywhere. It didn't matter which position I lied, sat, walked. Um, and uh, it took about, a, I'd say, about six weeks to um, try antidepressants and get that therapeutic level. I was put on Zimbalta, which it saved my life because I obviously needed the dopamine to try and get me to start functioning and trying to do something. And that's it. So so began my journey and my frequent visits in my book. I, I refer to him as DBS, death by suicide. He was with me all along. And that's why I, I felt it was necessary to personalize him um, because he, he, he never left my side. And... Sometimes, you know, he I, I likened him in my book to sitting in a rocking chair in the corner of the rabbit hole, just waiting patiently for me. And other times he was a front and center on my bed, whispering in my ear, just do it, get it over, you'll be happier. And so, yeah, August 2015 is when my life changed. Uh, so you've been a nurse for over, what, 36 years Yep. And working with in gerontology and dementia, it, we have, I don't know how you refer to it, but working with people in general, you know, you have to, you have to be mindful of what we call secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, you know, yes. me, meaning that dealing with people who have been traumatized or people who have succumbed to, you know, any kind of health condition. In, in the case of dementia, of course, they don't necessarily always recognize that there's something wrong um, because of the, right. the, the, the degenerative nature of, of their disease. But um, how much of that, do you, if any, do you feel like that played a role in the overall stress? And, and the bullying aside, how much just working with, with people who suffer from those severe conditions, how much did that weigh on you and, and maybe even help to uh, propel you down that rabbit hole? You know, in hindsight, after obviously um, in the November of 2015, I had my first meeting with my psychologist and you start exploring all those, you know, early childhood traumas and then throughout life traumas. And yes, um, I know it had to have played a part because as a nurse, um, you see uh, terrible grief and sadness and you see horrific um, injuries and you have to be there constantly you know to support not only your team but also the you know the grieving family and with dementia it's yes I mean it's the sadness it's it's being with a person that was such you know an important and effective and contributing member of society and seeing the sadness that they not they no longer know who they are and what it does to the family and so yes definitely all that emotional um, nursing care was taking its toll and that's why that on top of you know the workplace stresses and then the bullying that was happening mm -hmm. I could feel the I could I I knew I remember walking into the hospital to work um, one morning and I think.
And it was probably early February of 2015. And knowing that I really didn't want to go to work, I didn't feel I was 100% up to par to be able to um, give that support and meet the, what was expected of me on that emotional level. And thinking like that one word said, maybe you're, you know, in the stages of burnout. And of course, five days later, I was off with pneumonia. Um, and so, you know, I'd never been sick ever, um, rarely if ever. <laughs> I think I've had the flu twice in my life. And it was like, my goodness, me, pneumonia, what the heck? Mm. Um, and so, yes, um, it definitely, um, like my psychologist and I, we've, we've charted, we've gone from like birth right through to the time that I fell down the rabbit hole. And I can see now everything that, you know, contributed not only to my increased likelihood of having depression, but also that all those um, prior experiences, if you were, you know, all in different areas of the brain, and then when the big event shatters the brain, you have so many emotional pieces, like this huge jigsaw puzzle that are there that you've got to start dealing with and repairing to try and heal, for want of a better word. Yeah. So, yes. And I mean, I know the brain so well. And, you know, I mean, I I knew, well, I thought I knew depression and mental illness. And I cared for many people of different ages um, who had mental illness, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety disorder. And it, it was funny, you know, as a nurse and knowing everything that day, I still at that point did not recognize that's what had happened to me because with the previous depressive episodes I had I hadn't had the the physical effects you know the weighing down in cement the the complete the pain the inability to walk properly and I hadn't had that suicide ideation which was so strong that I very calmly began the first step and it's it's funny because there are certain stages in your life when the nursing doesn't you know come through and the, that rationalization um even when I sat and my doctor told me what I had it made sense but I still couldn't um, at that moment understand because it was so atypical to the two previous episodes Tracy, if you don't mind, can we break down the word depression uh, itself? I, I feel like I feel like depression is they're taking a hold on it a lot more now, and it's a lot more serious than it has in the past. But I, I feel like it's still kind of thrown around sometimes by some people. It not as important as it it probably should be. So, like when you had your first episode of depression, did it take? somebody to tell you that that's what this is or did you know on your own that this is what's going on and I need to seek help? I mean, what, what just depression in general, can you break that down? Well, uh, I mean, there are, there are many different types of depression, but I mean, depression in general is, I mean, it's, it's not the, oh, I feel so depressed. I'm so sad. You know, I, I didn't, 
um, make the uh, the cheerleading team or something. Right. It's not that. Everyone thinks it's sadness and disappointment in your life, and it isn't. Sadness plays a key role, but it's so many other factors. It's, I mean, when I had my first episode, I recognized what it was and went for help. It was the, um, I had no appetite. I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia. It was overwhelming sadness and hopelessness and feeling that I was worthless and pathetic and I was no good for anyone, even though I, I didn't have suicide ideation. And at that time, I likened it to I was outside a building, a very high building, and my fingers were on the latch. And one by one, my fingers were being lifted off the latch. And I was being I was just suspended by like just two fingers holding on for dear life. And I could feel that if they released, I was gonna fall into this abyss of darkness. I think because it's so complex, for want of a better word, that's why people don't understand it. I mean, the brain is your powerhouse. Without your brain, you die. And lots of people think it's the heart. And certainly the heart pumps the blood around the body, but the brain is the center force, which keeps every organ, you know, your nervous system, digestive, circulatory, endocrine, immunity, it keeps everything working together and keeps you alive. And so when you have, it's it's an injury to the brain, but it's an internal injury and that's the problem. It's the invisible illness and so no one can see it. But it's, it's that overwhelming uh, feeling of you're pathetic, you're hopeless, it's negative, you see no future. You were in so much pain, my brain hurt so badly some days it would buzz there is so much clouding and the fatigue it's it's the overwhelming fatigue and when I try to explain to people I I say yes you know that you feel hopeless and you have sadness but it's more than that it feels like Everything has overwhelmed you to such a degree that even the mere thought of having to get up, go somewhere, do something is so consuming and almost suffocating. And it's so painful for you to even make that first move and drag. And it's it's not getting up, it's dragging yourself from point A to point B be, um, it's like this tremendous weight has descended upon you and it's completely enveloped you and you can't think properly, you can't remember things. Um, it's, it's the simple tasks of, you know, going to brush your teeth and taking 30 minutes because of the sheer exhaustion, but also you don't want to do it because you don't feel that there's a purpose to it. But then there's a tiny voice in your brain which says you should do this and you need to do this because this is your part of your daily routine. Um, and it's 
it 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 goes on. They say it's you know, it's problems with eating and sleeping and functioning in your daily life and um, and in your social life and in your work life and it's daily and it's repeated and the symptoms and the signs have to be consistent for a minimum of two weeks to truly warrant a diagnosis of depression. And even then, I still don't think when you do all those um, tests at the doctor's office and they say mild, moderate, severe, um, I still don't think it captures what you go through because our brains are so unique and individual. And when we experience this breakdown, all our previous experiences and traumas and history all come to the forefront as well, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And there, there are some very, very stark elements here to depression to differentiate from low mood, for instance. You yes. know, low mood, it, it, you can liken it to sadness. You can liken it yeah. to, to just not really engaging, not, not having that engagement in life 100%. You know, you just don't feel the energy, the motivation. That's different than, than being depressed, cl- clinically depressed. You know, I think a lot of people, Tracy, would be maybe even shocked to know that depression has the kind of physical effects that you just talked about, the feeling like you're stuck in concrete. You know, people wonder, why can't that person just snap out of it? Yes. J- just think yeah. happy thoughts. Everything's going to be okay. Oh, oh <laughs> yes. Have you, have you ever heard that yourself, Tracy? Oh, in my book, I, I have a chapter where I've put the 10 um, weirdest things people have said to me. And it is, you, you know, you're called lazy. Yes. And you're called selfish and yeah put a smile on your face turn that frown upside down you know um and smile and with me um I was alone I mean I was divorced and I was alone and so I can't I had no choice there was no one to bring me chicken soup in bed and you know console me and say come on let's try this it was I lay there and the nursing brain was kicking in going, okay, if you don't get out of bed, you're never going to get out of bed. So you, you've got to fight this and you've got to keep going. And it is such sheer overwhelming effort. And I think that's what people don't get. It's at the end of the day, it's it's not the happiness per se because you can still meet a friend and at that moment in time laugh and smile and feel it was a good experience and then within seconds you're back in your rabbit hole and it's it's incapacitating and it's the and I think what what happens is because there is so much that's happening in your head and your brain is trying to make sense out of it. And that's why, you know, I was awesome. I I could, my memory was brilliant and I could multitask. Like I could do three things at once. And now all of a sudden I was sitting there and I couldn't even work out my bank account and I couldn't remember things. And it was 
you know, I could unload the dishwasher and talk on the phone at the same time and tie up the garbage, you know, before I fell down the rabbit hole. And now I'm standing there looking at a dishwasher going, okay, it was like one cup at a time. And then I couldn't put the, you know, anything away. I would come back to that later because it was like, I've got to lie down now. It was, it was just so exhausting. And I think that is, that is the challenge. But because depression is so common and it's, it's like a, a new epidemic, I mean, and it's children and teenagers and young people and adults and then even older adults, like it, depression is so very common in people who experience dementia and chronic illnesses and terminal illnesses. And so if people actually just sat there for a moment and thought, if they themselves don't have depression, I bet you anything they know someone who has depression. And yet we still don't fully acknowledge that and are willing to, you know, talk about it and talk to people with depression about it. I was told um, I'm, I'm a Brit. So, yes, I had to go to the doctor's office. I had to get my pills. And I, I made sure that um, the British thing, right, always try and look your best out in public. And when people would meet me, I would give a smile, but the smile never reached my eyes. It was just a lip movement. And I would say, oh, you know, how are you? And I'd say, oh, I'm okay. And they would follow with, oh, haven't seen you around or you're not at work. And I would be very honest. Well, I have depression. I have clinical depression. And this is what's going on. And you could see people, it was like that, recoil in their body movement and the eyes and some people would say oh well I'm running late I've got to go look after yourself um, others would be sympathetic and understanding but then you'd get some people look you up and down and go you can't have depression you must have the mild version look well look at you and I had one lady say that's impossible you can't have depression you're out in public. You can't even, you know, you can't even leave the home if you have depression. And mm. it, you know, and then I had somebody tell me, well, go to church and pray more often and invite God into your life. And a friend actually said to me, well, your problem is that you've invited the devil into your life. Satan is now in your life and that's why you have depression. And it's that stigma and that misinformation that has kept going for decades and decades that so many people still believe and it's you know it's 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 frustrating yeah there's a lot of, of stigma involved of course uh, mm -hmm. even though depression is so common but i think most of that comes from the misconception now if you want to go way back you mentioned like inviting the devil into your life you know at, yeah. at, it wasn't too awful long ago that you know society pretty much across the board believed that if you were suffering from a mental illness then you were in fact demon possessed and we, and, and we need to drill holes in your head in order to let that that yes. spirit escape you know yes. And, and in the grand scheme of things, that really wasn't too long ago. And, and if you look at it's, uh, mankind as a whole, a, a history as a whole, we spent most of our time believing that way. You know, oh, and absolutely. so it's it's really we're really you know it seems like with the the proliferation of technology and information and things like that, 
I would think that uh, mental health awareness and things like that would have come a lot further than what it has. Now, grant you, we have made big strides, and there's a lot of good people out there like you, Tracy, who are spreading the word about mental health and what it means, and that it's not anything, you know, supernatural. Sometimes it is circumstantial, you know, and, and there is a continuum uh, of depressive symptoms, you know, I believe some people can just be moder- you know, moderately depressed, and some people can be severely depressed. Sometimes it's circumstantial or episodic. Sometimes it is, in fact, genetic or has genetic components. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, matter of the chemicals in your brain. Um, at any rate, though, depression is a very real thing, and it has very real consequences, not just mentally, but also physically and socially yeah. and economically. And these things tend to implode on themselves, and it's hard to unwind all that because one thing makes the other one worse. Well, exactly. Don't you think people brush off depression because it's something that you can't see? Like, you know, yes. I, I'm not going to be as sympathetic to I, – like, I can see the symptoms – that or I can see the effects that it's having on you, but I can't see depression itself as a thing, right? So it, it seems like people can brush that off a lot easier. If your leg's broken, I'm gonna have sympathy because your leg's broken and you can't yeah. move very well. Okay, but I'm if I actually have depression, this is my brain that controls my entire body that has an issue. Right. I can't see that, but this is a mate like this is controlling my entire body, mm-hmm. and you just you can't. Like I said, you can see the effects, you just can't see it as an actual thing. Right. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I mean, that is one of the reasons why, A, I do the work that I'm doing, and B, I, I wrote my book. Um, it, I was so frustrated with trying to get friends who were doctors and nurses and social workers to understand what I was going through that... Um, my psychologist suggested, you know, why don't you start writing a blog and invite them privately to read the blog and be as honest as you can be um, so they truly understand, A, what you feel like, but, you know, what life is like when you have uh, a major depression. And I am denied for about six weeks because I knew if I did that, then I would really have to be very, very honest. And it, it is, it's bearing your entire soul, your heart and soul, your life, everything. And finally, I thought, you know what? I, I, I was, you know, walking around the house and I just felt like I wanted to just pull my brain out of my head and just have peace with no thoughts, because when you have thoughts, they're just horrible and they're negative. And, you know, it, it, it just, it, they just beat you down. And I wanted to, you know, rip it out and let the shower run all over it, A, to stop the fiery burning pain, but also just to stop the thoughts for a moment, just to have nothing in my head. And I thought, you know, I, I've got to put this down on paper and let's see what you know what everyone says and so I started the blog and um like almost immediately uh, as soon as it was uh, published I had friends contacting me going oh my goodness I didn't realize that's how you felt that's what it's like uh you should put this in a book and I thought well come on it's only just one blog (laughs) let's wait until the rest of the blog goes up and then so every few days or once a week 
I would continue my story. And it was constant positive feedback. And even when I documented the the second suicide attempt in, in great detail, you know, I had people going, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I was never there for you. I didn't realize it was that bad. And it, it gave them way more awareness because, again, they didn't realize the extent of the emotional pain and the the confusion and the forgetfulness and the inability to, you know, complete a task in a timely manner and then the physical effects. And everyone just, the doctors were saying, no, you've got to put this in a book. I've learned so much. And so finally, about six months in, I thought, okay, if, I, if I'm if i going to put this in a book, what is the purpose? And it was because I didn't want anyone else in the world who was going through this kind of depression to think that they were alone, that I thought I was the only one. I thought that, you know, um, I researched everything. I was a nurse. I read every article you could think of, and I still thought, you know, oh, my depression, this is a different kind of depression, I'm, you know. And then when I'd start talking to people and I'd say, oh, God, I feel like I'm in cement, and they would be, oh, God, yes. I remember I had such physical pain, and I'm thinking, okay. I, I really wanted to convey the message that what you're going through, as horrible as it is, is normal, for want of a better word, um, and it will it will get better. And so it kind of became a plan then where I I wanted to document my journey of how the healing started, and I shared that on my blog, and to show the stages of okay, there's I'm getting better. Um, it's not like, wow, you wake up one day and it's like, hey, no pain, I'm great, you know, run, 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 happy, happy, happy. But it was just that, you know, a, a positive day as opposed to seven endless eternal bad days. And all the way through I had journaled because I'm the analytical brain trying to make sense out of everything. And then I added expressions of gratitude onto that because my doctor and psychologist said, we know that you're stuck in this whole of darkness but you've got to try and switch your mindset to that there's still good in the world and you can still experience good in a different way so try and express gratitude and you know initially the gratitude was I got out of bed and I stayed up all day and I washed my hair and then the gratitude would be you know I went out and I had coffee and I could see what I was doing there was a slight switch and then the gratitude became you know seeing a flower the first flower in spring peeking through the snow and just looking at the colors and being more mindful and it was that time I had the realization that you know I can't keep beating myself up are you going to be healed in a week a month a year I would go to my doctor and say you know just give me a date when will I be better because you're on this journey and there's no end in sight and 
it was we can't give you a date you it's your brain it's complex it, it'll heal when it needs to heal and so i learned to be in the moment because i think with depression you have to be mindful and appreciate the moment and the day and that's what propels you on to another day instead of you know thinking okay i'm it's two weeks it's two weeks i have to be better in two weeks and then if you're not you, you just beat yourself up and you it just you fall back down your rabbit hole um and so after in the june of 2017 i uh, connected with someone in montreal canada who had previously published and edited books and said hey people keep telling me my blog should be a book um, if I let you read it, can you give me your honest answer? And I said, I really want it to be book worthy. If you do not think it's good enough, then tell me I'm, I'm, my feelings won't be hurt. And within about three hours, she contacted me and said, I have you an editor in Toronto. Wow. You, you, you need to write this book. And so the book began. Um, it was my blog entries um, it was excerpts from my my journal on my expressions of gratitude because I wanted it to be um, a part where those with depression who were reading it or people who were looking after those with depression could understand what it's like and would be a little bit more understanding and supportive and not think that they were faking it or being lazy, or being difficult. Um, and so by using the excerpts from the journal, they could see that even on, you know, the really, really dark days, you could still see good that was happening. And most of it was related to, you know, nature, the beauty of nature. But lots of it then became simple things, not materialistic. Like, you know, I, I go to Starbucks every day, and, uh, and that was just to pass time because if I stayed at home with my thoughts, I would perseverate on things and it would get worse. And so it was just to socialize. And you weren't even visiting with people, but you would, you know, hello, hello, smile, smile. And you'd sit there and at least you were in society and you you would feel for that moment kind of normal and, and inclusive. And I'd go into Starbucks and they'd say, hey, free drink. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. And that was my gratitude for the day. And so it started giving me a different appreciation of life. And also, I think it enabled me to start understanding myself a little bit better and what was really important to me. And so that's how the book evolved. Um, we also put lots of resources in the back because I wanted it to kind of be that one-stop shopping so they could read it and they could get the help and the information they needed. But the book um, evolved into sharing my self-help tips and books and videos and websites that had helped me. And also the conclusion, you know, and I make it very clear that you're not suddenly healed and everything is erased and life is awesome again. Um, but you move to a, um, a more hopeful future as it is. Um, that the good days, that there are more good days than bad days. You see more positive things in life and you start taking control of your life again. And there is hope through the darkness. And I wanted that to be 
um, the main component of the book that it's really, really bad and you don't think this can ever change because I lived it and I was on my own and I, I, I did it. I fought the suicide and the horrible bad thoughts and I carried on forcing myself every single day, you've got to get up, you've got to eat, you've got to do this if you want to live and it is, it's fighting to live and not to die and that there you can do it um, you must want to do it, but you can do it and you will get out of your rabbit hole or your well or your cornfield or your deep ocean bed, whatever you attribute your depression to be like, that you, you will make it. You really will. And you'll come out of it a different person, very changed, but different, um, more uh, stronger for sure. Uh, but more understanding and open-minded and a realization of really what is important to you and what is important to life. And so when the book was published, April 2018, um, my plan was promote my book and go and, you know, talk and raise awareness about mental health and mental illness and let's end the stigma. And a year, sorry, a month after the book was um, released, I was asked to go and talk to some teenagers um, in a middle school. And I went over and I, it was to talk about my book and how I used imagery to liken pain and how the depression felt. And what was supposed to be, you know, using imagery of an erupting volcano to help them improve their essay writing techniques actually became um, over an hour of listening to kids asking very, very um, sensible, very articulate, well thought out questions about mental illness and depression and suicide and what can they do to help someone and also those that were experiencing something to started asking questions, you know, how could they help themselves? And I was just absolutely amazed at how many of the kids were going through something. I mean, it was all of them. If they didn't have a mental illness themselves or were being bullied, they knew someone. And then when I returned two weeks later to do an, uh, it was an all day human library, and I was supposed to come and sit at a table and the kids who had signed up um, were to listen to 30-minute talks about how to write a book and become a first-time author. And when the first group sat down at 8.30 in the morning, and these were um, teenagers from the ages of 11 to 15, and they had signed up in advance to sit at my table, and I started talking about the book. They were kind of all nudging each other and looking at each other, and I'm like, well, didn't you, didn't you sign up to listen to me talk about how to write a book? And one of the girls finally had enough courage, and she looked at me and she goes, "We signed up because we want to talk to the lady who escaped the rabbit hole." And so it began. Um, I had groups ranging from six to ten teenagers every thirty minutes sit down and tell me their stories. And 
I had more waiting for me after the end of each session. I had a 15-year-old girl whisper in my ear that she had just come home from hospital after her second suicide attempt and then showed me all the cutting that she had done on her arms. Mm. And at the end of the day, I had this very, very quiet 13-year-old boy that hadn't said anything during the talk. Um, He came up to me and he was so embarrassed and he was stuttering and he said can I can I talk to you please and I said absolutely you know what would you like to talk about and he literally fell into my arms into my left shoulder sobbing his heart out and said when will I escape my rabbit hole I've been there for seven years and he absolutely broke my heart and At the end of that session, I'd had 63 teenagers come and share with me what they were going through. And it, I was heartbroken. I cried all the way home. And when I got home, I started doing research because I could not believe that so many kids were going through this, this pain. And the stats just horrified me, like one in five teenagers have a mental illness and 50% of all lifetime mental illnesses show signs and symptoms by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24 and so that's just a huge number and at that time I thought okay mission changes yeah I'll promote my book because lots of teenagers had read it and they love it especially because they can relate to the illustrations in there but I thought no one hears these kids, you know, and if I, what I went through to fight my depression and get through the other side, and I have, I mean, I'm a nurse, and I have the knowledge, and I have a lifetime of skills and lived experiences and coping strategies, and I struggled, how on earth are these kids supposed to do it when they haven't even begun to live their lives and develop those skills? And so that was it. That was my decision. My mantra changed, and it was, "Let's help the kids." Wow, what a what a great way to uh, try to attack the problem too, is to uh, start when they're young. You know, because it's a shame that so many, and, and you could probably uh, you could probably back this up, reinforce this notion, Tracy, that if, if we could get to people sooner. You know, if we could get to the young people sooner, then perhaps they could, you know, maybe not make a complete turnaround. Hopefully some of them will. I I believe that's possible. But a lot of them at least just start through this process. For one, I think one of the important things that you did there that I noted is that you put a you put a practical definition or explanation to their disposition to to what they were experiencing. And that's the rabbit hole. They started even using that terminology. And he, he asked you the question, when am I going to get out of the rabbit hole? Because you had already connected on that level. He, he understood that you understood. And you, yes. you may have been the very first one to ever understand, at least that, that he had come across, that he had been able to communicate with. And what a huge impact that you have right there, the, the potential for, for that to impact that young man's life and, and possibly turn things around for him, possibly even avoid suicide, you know. Um, something that was so profound that was told to me not too awful long ago, I had never thought about, I had never experienced suicidal ideations or any, any kind of anything like that myself, but, uh, it was explained to me that suicide's not about dying. It, no, it's no. about stopping the pain, you yes, know, or stopping it's, the it's thoughts, pain. stopping the feelings, yeah. right? Yeah. 
that's Absolutely. that's that's so profound and i i didn't realize that i didn't know that and i think a lot of people don't know that they don't understand that they see suicide as a selfish act that person decided to duck out instead of facing his or yeah. her problems and they took their own life because they'd rather do that than than stick it out you know like the rest of us have and yeah. and so but it's once it was explained to me in that way, it was like such a profound shift of my perceptions of suicide and what it means for people who are going through that. And, you know, once again, oftentimes people like those young people that you're describing, they don't have connection with anybody because had I not uh, been told that about suicide, I would never have been able to really truly connect with someone who was experiencing suicidal thoughts and, and behaviors. And so it's so important to, to, to connect with people, especially at such a young age. That, that's, that's an amazing thing that happened to you. And if you believe that things happen for a reason, that happened for a reason. Your life happened for a reason, you know, the, and for you to intersect with these people. That's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. And it, yes, you know, it's, it's strange. Um, things happen. Uh, you're absolutely right. right? Things, things happen that keep pointing you in a direction that, you, your, your boat is supposed to sail, I guess. Um, and it's like every day, you know, when you hear that another child or teenager has ended their life. I mean, we have children in the States as young as six who are hanging themselves. I mean, to me, that is, the, I mean, that is tragedy beyond words. Mm. I mean, six years old and... You know, just the stats are just horrific. And I mean, even when I started the work uh, last September, um, when I came down to the States and started going on local media and talking about it, this, the statistics for suicide attempts and suicide have increased since then. And, you know, today, like in the, sta- in the United States, 16 teenagers will die by suicide. Mm. And tomorrow another 16 will die and the day after that and that's 16 future stars you know there are generation that you know could be the person that finds the cure for alzheimer's and cancer and it's it's so sad because there's so much hope and potential and a life that is now unlived and unfulfilled because their pain and sorrow was so bad that they felt, and they felt so unloved because so many teenagers that have survived suicide attempts, they say they did it because of the pain. They wanted to end the pain and they did it because they felt that no one understood and no one would care that they were gone that they were such, you know, small little specks in the universe and that people, you know, would be sorry, but that they they did not feel worthy of their love and that death was the better option. And to me, that that is so sad that they're actually feeling that they're that irrelevant in life it's it's got to end. It's absolutely got to end because before long we're going to have a future generation that are so damaged and um, you know going into a life pursuing lifestyles which does not have a good good 
outcome because they don't know what else to do because they're not getting the help and the support and the understanding that they're screaming for. And so I agree, it has got to start. My philosophy is we have to start as soon as they go into school. We need to get them to start understanding that, you know, pain and heartbreak and stress and anxiety are part of of normal mental health. But we have to show them strategies for how to cope with it and manage it so they can learn to develop better coping skills and also how to look after their own mental health and and to have a better understanding of what mental disorders are, you know, that anxiety and depression and bipolar are disorders of the brain that you need more support and more help with managing than the, oh, I'm feeling anxious, I have an exam tomorrow. And I think if we create better awareness and more education and support around identifying, um, you know, when a person is depressed and getting them the supports they need and also creating awareness amongst their classmates that this is what John is going through and this is what we can do to help him, we can create a, a much nicer, kinder, more supportive generation of people where there is no shame in standing up and saying, I have a social anxiety disorder, or I have depression, or I have bipolar. And you're, you're supported, and you're embraced, and you're welcomed, and you're still inclusive in society. You're not pushed off to the side as being the weirdo. Yes. And, you know, that and bullying would reduce significantly with that mindset as well. But we've got to give our kids the tools and the knowledge and the strategies to give them a crack at life because this life is hard. (laughs) Um, It's harder than when I was a kid and the expectations upon them are enormous under pressures and it's like you can't put that expectation upon them without giving them the skills and the tools to to deal with it yes that's right and so you know yes i believe we've got to start young 100 percent. you 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 hit a nail right on the head there as far as giving the tools i think too often we we just even though we don't think it in terms uh uh, literally, but we think, you know, why you need to just snap out of it. You need to, you need to use your coping skills and, and, and get better, you know, well, what are your coping skills? How do you use those? Exactly. Uh, I love, I love Tracy that you mentioned mindfulness and gratitude as being, as being two approaches that you use to, uh, to treat your depression. Those things are, they're, they're so, they're, they're so profound in life. They're so useful and so tactical to combat yes. all kinds of different issues that we have. And it's kind of becoming trendy. You know, mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness is, is starting to become more, more and more trendy in, in our society, in Western culture. But the, the uses of it are, I believe, so important that we don't want to gloss over it just because it's becoming more popular. I think we want exactly. to ma- make sure that we are engaging with these tools. It's maybe not for everybody, and that's okay. But for some people, it, it has such a, an impact that we want to make sure we have that in our tool belt. 
and, and gratitude. I have someone in particular that I'm working with, not professionally, but just in my life. I'm, I'm just making sure as much as possible that he's waking up grateful more days than not, because when we have gratitude in our minds, there's not quite so much room for negativity. You know, exactly. that gratitude takes up so much mental space. And, yes. and, and that's a good thing. That, that's, that's a good tool for us to have. It's a good knowledge to have that we can, when we're, we, we can be grateful, then we push out a lot of other things. We, we don't allow room for, you know, a lot of the other things that could occupy that space in our minds. And then one of the one of the most profound things you've said today, Tracy, in my opinion, is that healing is a is a process, and we we need to have that mindset. You know, we've we've taken on the philosophy that in substance abuse and things like that, with uh, the twelve steps, or, or even with just some of the other co occurring disorders work that we do, that recovery is a lifelong process. You know, in other words, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You know, I don't like that that phrase, but that's kind of the layman's common phrase for that. But recovery for for depression can be a lifelong process as well. It might not have to be. It might be episodic, and you can get through it and just look back. But for some people, it's a lifelong process, and that's okay. As long as the healing continues, as long as the journey is geared toward healing, it's okay for recovery to be a lifelong process. So don't, like like you mentioned earlier, don't get two weeks down the road or even two years down the road and think, I thought I was going to be better than this by now. You know, look at the progress that you're making Take that and wear that like a badge of honor because that is progress and that is something that's very important. So, um, Tracy, if you could give us one last message that you'd like for our listeners to hear and then also uh, remind us where we can find your book and where we can find out all about you, any blogs that you have going, any radio shows that you're, that you're doing still, anything at all. So to find me, um, obviously, the best thing is to go on my website, www.tracymaxfield.com. And yes, um, all my previous shows are on their upcoming events. Um, They can have a sneak look at uh, the first two chapters of my book. Uh, My book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, But I've also got um, all the illustrations from the book in there. And lots and lots of articles. So there's lots of articles about mental illness, bullying, depression, and there's a section solely on children and teenagers for mental illness. And there's um, some great info in there, not only for for the kids to read, but also, you know, parents, teachers, anybody that really wants to have a better understanding so they, they can help support our kids. Um, and what would I leave you with? I think, my philosophy is, you know what? Never give up. It it really will get better. It really will. It's going to take time, but it will get better. But just keep going. It's one small step at a time. And to be kind, be kind to yourself, but spread kindness everywhere. I think the world is lacking in kindness. And on my social media, I have sprinkled kindness everywhere. Um, It's be kind and understanding to other people. We don't know what anyone is going through. We really don't. And um, a smile, holding a door open, a hello, you know, helping with their groceries. Small gestures are so meaningful to other people because you don't know their history and what they're experiencing at that moment. And just something as simple as a hello and, 
you know, oh, that's a lovely shirt or that's a lovely dress or just a smile and a genuine smile um, lifts their spirits and means so much. And so it's, yeah, be kind. I love it. Be kind. Yep, yeah, I love it. Small steps, a lot of small steps. And those, those small steps, after you take 100 small steps, you've gone quite a long way. <laughs> yeah. It is. And Absolutely. as I said, keep going. It will, it absolutely will get better. Excellent. Tracy, thanks again for coming on and for sharing your message with our listeners. And keep up the great work. Let's keep battling the stigma, first of all. And uh, we'll keep giving as many tools as possible to those that need it. And sharing your story is a is a great step. So thanks again, Tracy. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. And we're out. Thanks again to Tracy Maxfield, and thank you, CEP listener. Remember that word of mouth is a great, great thing, so be sure to tell your friends and fam about the show, and also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to keep the variety coming straight to your ear holes nonstop. You can also download the episodes at the launching pad for all things cerebral at thecepodcast.com, and if you do need to get in touch with us for uh, booking information or playlist submission or whatever, just whatever, you can do that at cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And of course, do not forget to give us all your love on the socials. We love seeing you on the socials. So until next time, please remember to keep your brains warm out there. We'll see ya. <laughs>